you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is a podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Russell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is playing the film festival circuit right now and won a bunch of awards. And I'm on over the moon about it. It's pretty amazing. Wow, you just like dropped a bomb. I will ask about that in a second. I am Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer. I've made two features and I'm in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales. And I also used to manage the Creative Distribution Initiative at Sundance. This week, we welcome filmmaker Katie Curran on the show to talk about how she got into filmmaking, the making of her second feature film, Surviving Lunch, and how she's managed to fund her films through the nonprofit model. After we talked to Katie, we discussed an article from Business Insider about the dismal box office for the Thanksgiving weekend. And Arik asks me some questions, I guess, about what to do after you've secured distribution. Before that, Arik, how are you doing? Doing great, as you might have noticed from that opening. <laughs> <laughs> my, my film played four film festivals over the weekend, which was incredible. I mean, there was two in person I couldn't go to and then two virtual. We had an award show for one of them for the Tampa Bay Underground Film Festival. And they, they did a really awesome thing where they brought everybody who couldn't be there in person in through Zoom. So they had all these filmmakers in from all over the world, like, Aww. you know, participate, participating through Zoom and people like chiming in and giving their acceptance speeches. And they did the award show like the old Oscars, where they showed clips of everything that was nominated. So it was like a true, Aww. like, I was like, I felt like I was at the damn Oscars. <laughs> it was really crazy. And then, yeah, we, we were nominated for nine, move, nine awards, oh my God. which was like tied for most nominations. And then we won four. Oh, <gasps> that's like, a good ratio. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and not even just four. But I got my very first ever best director award that I've ever gotten in my life for oh my anything, which was incredible. And then we won for best sci-fi feature and best feature. And then Ed won his third best actor award, which is incredible. So I was like, I don't know, man. That's I amazing. felt like I was living the dream in a big way this weekend, which is, I don't know, incredible. That is a very, very big deal. Congratulations. Yay! Thank you. Yay! Go alternate. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. And then also, I'm like prepping for the pitch for my new movie, Brother, the feature like version. And that's happening this Thursday and Friday. I'm doing a, a speed pitching event. So it's like there's three p- speed pitching sessions because not everyone was available at the same time. So, like, mm. they broke it up. So I'm going to do three. Uh, and that's all I have time for. I mean, they're two hours each. So it's like, that's a lot of time to be pitching. Oh my God. <laughs> but yeah, I, but I prepped my pitch. I did the pitch video that they wanted me to send in along with um, my pitch deck and I'm working on the budget for the movie. And so it's sort of like kind of jumpstarted me into like pre-pro for this movie that I've been yes. like, the script's been done for over a, almost a year, but like now we're finally like pushing it forward. So it's very exciting. Ideas are popping in my mind. It feels really cool. So, but yeah, how are you doing? I was just thinking like, you're really going to refine your pitch really well if you're doing it over and over again for two hours, twice, oh, three yeah. times, three times, three sets of two, right? Mm-hmm. Is it six hours? Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I'm like a little jealous. I'm like, oh, I really wish I could learn how to pitch something by doing it over and over and over again. I think that's really cool. Yeah. It's five minute sections, right? So yeah. like in two hours, however many people I can pitch five minutes to yeah. at a time. So it's going to be a lot of pitching. It'll be great. That's like, that's growth. You're going to be a better pitcher at the end of that just <laughs> yeah. by sheer like intensity. What, what is going on in my life? 
we're soft locked on the short film, which is really wonderful. It's very exciting. <laughs> soft locked. Soft locked. Well, because we go to visual effects, and my editor oh, is okay. kindly humoring me in that, like, <laughs> if the visual effects don't work out for one reason or another, we can reopen the cut and adjust things. So he's been yeah. very, very generous with me. We have color on Wednesday. And then Thursday, I'm taking my acting class and I've been trying to memorize my lines. <laughs> oh, my God. It's oh, so my God. I'm like talking out loud and I'm like pretending I'm doing the scene in my bedroom. And like I sat in with Sean last night and it's really fun. Like I am going through it and I'm trying to find a reason why I'm saying every single line. And that's even that even the preparation for this class has been really beneficial because I'm like, oh, of course, that's what actors do. I didn't even think about that. So it's like every single word, I'm like, oh, why, why am I saying it like that? And what are the circumstances? And so that has been really good homework. So I'm ending one thing and trying to get something else off the ground. That's cool. Well, I really want to hear about how the acting class goes, because I don't know. It's something I've always said I wanted to do. I'm like, yeah, I want to do improv. Yeah, I, I want to do an acting class. Yeah, that'd be great. And I've never done it. And I don't know if I ever will. <laughs> Improv want to. specifically scares me because it seems like <laughs> it feels like at least in L.A., it's like a one upmanship about being funny rather than being a good improviser. So that's very scary, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. But I'll let you know. Well, I, yeah, we'll go on. I don't know. Yeah, let me know. <laughs> well, speaking of letting other people know about things. I'm here to let you know to don't forget to support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. Last week, we celebrated Carter Smith. He had a birthday because he is a Patreon supporter. You too could have a birthday on our podcast and we will cheer you on and celebrate you. So don't forget about that. And uh, keep out your eye out on the Patreon too, because lots of changes oh, yeah. coming. We're going to have a new thing there. We already announced it. We're going to have all our back episodes backlogged from now on. And the only way you'll have access is through the Patreon. So pretty much everybody who's already a supporter will have access because we have very few $1 people. All the $1 people don't get access. Anyone who's over a dollar, $2 or up, they'll get access. So that's like one of my main missions I'm doing right now. So episodes haven't started to disappear yet, but they will. This week, I promise you, there'll be less episodes because I'm going to do it maybe even today, maybe tomorrow, but it's going to start going away. But anyways, thank you all for supporting the Patreon. Yeah, we love you guys. Thank you. And don't forget to check out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and they have a top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. We're going to interview some of these writers in the coming weeks, so we're pretty excited about that. Head over to networkisa.org. We have a new promo code, MMIH2021. It, well, it's the same promo code, but now you can use it until January 15th to get 20% off an ISA Connect membership for new members only. But without further goobly gobbledy, here's our chat with KT Korean. So KT, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. So lovely to be here. So first off, give us the elevator pitch for Surviving Lunch. Well, Surviving Lunch uh, was made in the year of the worst record in the history of America for gun violence in American schools. And it's a movie about 
bullying and gun violence in the schools. It's about a young girl grieving the loss of her father from gun violence who moves to a new town in Florida to recover. And then she encounters the worst bully that the school has ever seen and rallies all her inner resources to combat the bully and save the day. <laughs> How many days did you shoot? We shot, I think, about 20 days. All, it was over a stretch because we were shooting in real lunchrooms as well as our regular production schedule. We utilized a lot of local students and hundreds of students. And so sometimes they were actually having lunch while we were filming. So we did consecutive weeks of that. And what was the rough budget of the movie? It was so small. It was about maybe 100000 yeah. Wow. The nice thing about our area is I've, I've been in this area, Sarasota, for a really long time, and it loves the arts. It loves uh, the community and really is so generous of things like locations and support and resources. And it's a really exceptional community for that. Also, thank you for sharing the budget total. We've been having a really good spend, like the past like five, Auric, have actually shared yeah. budget numbers. So thank you. Thanks for well, being part of the There's lots of reasons, you know, I'm finding because I started my own company, my own film company this year. It's a nonprofit. So it's a slightly different model for making movies. But I realize as an executive director, there's lots of reasons why you sort of want to keep your budget kind of close to the best because you're always talking to different people and hiring and fundraising. And, and I think maybe there's a little bit of shame. I know I felt it with my first feature, the first time club, we made it on nothing. And I think I even when I was inputting all for IMDb, they're like, no, you can't make a feature for this. That's way too low. <laughs> they flagged it. <laughs> they flagged it. I said, I did. <laughs> That's great. How did you come up with the idea for Surviving Lunch? You talk about it in the pitch a little bit, but we'd love to hear more color. Well, I also come from a theater background. And so I've written a lot of plays for young adults. And one of them was a play called Surviving Lunch about bullying. And the gun violence was a kind of a side part of it, like just a kind of a threat. But as the climate and the polarity in America just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And little did I know how bad it was actually going to be. But I said, I really want to do a film about bullying. And I was at my first premiere and someone said, what's your next film? And I just said, it's a film about bullying. <laughs> and uh, I found that old play and expanded it and made it into a feature film. And I really like seeing how extreme behavior kind of is like the last, you know, like you saw with kind of in America, it started with just name calling and bullying behavior and not respecting people's differences. And then it's led to this a lot of violence and extreme behavior. And I think it's a natural progression of when we start allowing those parts of our worst parts of ourselves to come out, that the inevitable consequence is going to turn violent. And that's what I was getting at with Surviving Lunch, that like, I think we've just this week have had two more terrible school shootings and it continues and it is terrifying for every parent and that our young children I had with surviving lunch so many talkbacks after the movie and everyone in the community was in tears no one wants this and so it became it was right after the Parkland shooting which was right across the, uh, Florida from us in Sarasota and our entire community many of us had friends who taught at the school or relatives who went to the school and it felt so close to our community. And 
we all felt when we made Surviving Lunch, it was a way for our community through the art, through filmmaking to respond to something that had us all so terrified and upset and feeling very helpless. And I, I think the arts are beautiful for that, that they give us an outlet for expressing that helplessness in the face of things that we can't really control. And then how long did you spend working on the film from coming up with the idea to its release? Probably two years, but I'd already had the script, the initial script. And so I had that initial script, which I did for many, many years. And then I rewrote it over about a year. And then as part of that, my process is when I, I create stories that come out of the most pressing issues of our time and craft narrative stories around those issues. Like right now, we're doing a film about first responders and coming out of the pandemic and mental health and about one specific woman's quest to come find the light at the, other, at the end of the tunnel, you know. But Surviving Lunch was also that I interviewed kids, teachers, parents, therapists, like what's going on? How do you feel about this? How is it to be in school and their school goes under lockdown? You know, what is it for you as a teacher? How has it changed the climate of going to school every day? And all that kind of feeds the narrative of the movie. And it's almost like making a documentary, but they're fictional. And because I, I find that the fiction format is better for me, the narrative format, because sometimes with a documentary, people want to protect their lives and their stories. And so if I can put it into a fictional narrative, you can sometimes be more truthful than you could with a documentary, if that makes sense. It does. <laughs> Compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one? It was so difficult. In fact, just as I was beginning, I canceled it. I said, this is too big. I'm not going to be able to pull it off because I didn't quite realize I have these great fantasies in my head, but then I don't realize you're going to have to have hundreds of kids. You're going to have to have access to all these schools. You're going to have to. And we have such a small budget. And I thought, what am I thinking? There's no way I can do this. So I canceled the project. And I called back my donors. I said, look, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this instead. And then Parkland happened. And I woke up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. And I just said, I have to do this movie. I will figure it out. But it felt huge. I was exhausted afterwards and was exhausted for many months afterwards because it was so many people, so many extras, so much access, so much laying the groundwork to allow us in to shoot in schools where school was in session. When schools, while we were filming, the schools were going into extreme lockdown and reviewing all their security procedures because all of America was like, uh oh, we've really got this is getting bad. And so they were putting in bulletproof glass in the entryways as we were filming, you know, and all the security was really high. And without the tremendous trust that I have in this community, I don't think I could have it would have been very difficult to pull it off. But again, it was a way to for the community to to be a part of this, this important story. And even the flags were all at half mast. And we would walk onto the school, pass the flags at half mast for students that had just been killed in school shootings. And it was sobering and it was so real and terrifying. And at the end of the film, we use a song that was written by two Parkland students. And I reached out to them after I'd heard their song, these beautiful, the beautiful two young girls who wrote this song that has then gone on to be shared all across the world. And they've made such a big effort against gun violence. And so we just 
our method is to involve as many people as we can in these stories, and they become a way for a community to process difficult things that have happened through art. I have like 5,000 questions that never know where how to go, but I'm going to try to form this one, which is a lot of our listeners, you know, they see what they want. They want to be filmmakers and they see the challenge. They see the mountain in front of them. And then they think, well, I can't make a movie for X, so I'll never do it. Or how can I ever fundraise for Y? You went through that something similar, right? Like you were like, oh, how do I have these many extras and how do I have these locations? And I assume with every project you feel that way. So as we all do. <laughs> I guess I want to talk just briefly about fundraising and how you approach putting together these budgets. Okay. I think I'm pretty good at fundraising, but it is so hard and it's so time consuming. And as an artist, you want to spend every minute of your time, you know, like right now, as I said, we start in two weeks. I was at a, a lunch with a donor today and I have so much to do, you know, shot lists and storyboards and actors and and the director, everyone kind of wants to talk to the director, you know, so you pretty much have to be that face for what you're doing or else have somebody who really can do that pitch and do that narrative for you. But my process is I started a 501c3 nonprofit. I'm used to the nonprofit world. I used to run a nonprofit called Source where we made Surviving Lunch. So I was used to that method of working with donors. The play, the, you made, when you said you made Surviving Lunch, Source. The movie too. Oh. Yeah, I used to run a program called Source Productions. And during the pan, and Surviving Lunch actually was going so far. We were actually screened in Russia during the pandemic. And I, I was thinking as we all were during the pandemic, like, what am I doing? You know, what do I want to do next? I really want to have my own film company. And then they called me from Moscow. We'd like to screen your film. And <laughs> we ended up being beamed into this theater in Sakhalin, which is on the edge of the world. It's on the edge of the sea between Russia and Japan. And all the people in the audience, we were on a big screen and we could see them and they could see us. And they were all wearing masks. And there were teachers and students. And the producer says, you are helping stop bullying in Russia. And I just was, it was midnight here. And I just felt I love the power of film and how it can travel and communicate across cultures and barriers. And it moved me so deeply. I thought I can't waste another day that and the pandemic. You know, I have to be making my movies. And so this movie I'm doing now, I literally have been working nonstop to try to tell this story in real time, raise the money and get it made, you know. And so the nonprofit, I'm, I'm talking in circles, but. <laughs> The nonprofit format, you meet with donors and they can donate to your project, but it's not a profit sharing like you would find producers who get points because a lot of indie films really don't tend to make massive amounts of money. I mean, there's, they're, as you probably know, it's like, you know, the best films that are ever made of indie films, they often aren't the big budget mm. projects. And so I feel they really lend themselves to the nonprofit world where you find people who are in alignment with what you're doing, kind of like professional theater, you know, where it can either be artistic or educational or, you know, in some way it benefits the community. And yes, that's also artistically. And so we form Wingspan Productions to create, you know, work that addresses the most pressing issues of our time 
in, in the most artistic and creative ways possible. And then I talk to people about that vision. And each year or two, we have a new initiative. And the film itself, like Surviving Lunch, becomes a centerpiece for a whole way of talking to the world. Mm. And so it's not just the movie, but it's, you know, having screenings and talkbacks, you know, similar to something, you know, things like movies like Traffic or there's lots of movies where you, they're all the wire. I see it a lot in cable TV where they're, they're movies that are about changing society in some way through true storytelling that makes people think and say, we, we can do better. You know, let's work. You're talking about impact distribution, right? Community screenings, semi-theatrical windows. Mm -hmm. I love it. Ulrich, I realize that you disappeared for a second. So you probably are chomping at the bit to ask 30 (laughs) questions. Yeah, I am. I I was looking on your snooping on your IMDb and I saw that your first feature was about a roughly $60,000 budget. And you said your second is a hundred. So I'm just curious, like, are you going back to the same well each time for your features or are you having it to kind of varies like this new feature like i just literally had a panic attack because we're doubling it for this so this one will probably be about 250 maybe and to me that that's so low that's still lower than anyone would consider you know a feature film budget but for me it's like heart attack <laughs> yeah especially because i don't do small films set in a in a little house. I, we are at multiple locations all over the place. And so we're doing a lot and I'm asking a lot of my crew and the actors. And I think it's because I, I do stories about societies in transition and I have a person caught up in that transition and I need to figure out, I keep saying my next film is going to be very small, <laughs> but I've saw a few articles online. I think there was one in backstage about some people finding this nonprofit 501c3 format a viable way for indie filmmakers to create funding for their films. And so I said, well, there you go. You know, that's what I want to do. What I didn't realize as an artist is how extraordinarily daunting it is to have a 501c3, the amount of paperwork, legal things involved. You have to have a board, you have you know, a CPA, everything is very tightly scrutinized because you are a nonprofit and there are great benefits, but you have to really be in for the amount of business part of the nonprofit that are involved and everything you have to dot every I and cross every T. And it's, you know, along with the philanthropy and the fundraising, just the business of running a 501c3 was so much more than I realized. Hmm. And that's why fiscal sponsorship has its own kind of side business, right? Yes, right. Exactly. And so I keep hoping we'll get to a point where I can have more people helping with all of this, you know, because there are only 24 hours in a day. (laughs) So do you feel like after doing that, that you'd want to do it again? Like if you could go back in time, would you start the business as a nonprofit over again? Or do you feel like there's other avenues that like just getting an LLC per movie? might be the better way to go. Well, I am open to that for certain projects. Like I might look at that in the future, depending on the nature of the film that I'm doing. But I think for a lot of the work I do, it lends itself to being a nonprofit. But I think like if I were just going to do just a purely entertaining, fun, wild romp, you know, I think I might do it through an LLC. 
or maybe if I were doing a series with Netflix or something like that, I probably would want to shift, not do it through the nonprofit. I don't think, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Does it sustain itself? I mean, I know by very nature, the term nonprofit implies things, but that doesn't mean non-revenue, you know, like money is coming in. So are you finding that you're able to fuel one project into another through the system? Well, it's brand new. We're just seven months old, but I was extraordinarily fortunate in that I received a major donation from a a trust, a charitable trust that funded our infrastructure for three years. So it basically pays my salary, business, you know, basic costs to run this company for three years, which was fantastic. And then out of that, I did all the fundraising for the movie. So that was separate funds than the actual movie. And so ideally, you would want that long term where you had enough to fund the infrastructure. And that we've just had so many great fortuitous events. Someone else donated a studio. It's just been really great. Like almost like it's meant to be, you know. So that answered one of our other questions we normally ask is like, how are you providing for yourself while you're making these but, movies? Right. It looks like you've got that figured out for at least a, a time period. Yeah, for three years. And then I'll probably be, have collapsed. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess I'm sorry. I know we're drilling into this and that's we tend to do that. So it's not just you. I'd be curious. You know, I understand the pitch. The pitch is you are a mission motivated company in person. You're telling stories that matter. I I totally get that. Mm -hmm. But how do you find the community of people who are willing, who have those the funds that are that want to use it in fiction filmmaking? You know what I mean? That's what is it? fundraisers. Is it? Yeah, I find I know a lot of people. And I have a long kind of a reputation of being somebody that really loves kids and cares about helping the world. And so there's a trust there in the community that comes out of many years of delivering through plays and workshops and all that. And I, because we're dealing with the most pressing issues of our time, generally people like school violence, people are interested in helping. And so if you have a movie, and a program that is interviewing kids and talking to people and helping a community heal from gun violence, there are a lot of people out there who want to support that. And the, the movie I'm making now is about mental health and coming out of COVID. We are all dealing with that, you know? And so the difficulty is because I'm dealing with issues that are happening in real time and films take a lot of time to create, you're kind of really moving fast. And so there's a pace that is kind of difficult. You don't have the luxury of honing it for years on end, you know, but as long as you reach out to the right people, like I get foundation support we have some beautiful foundations here that care very much about the community, both the arts and about young people and about certain issues like mental health or first responders or gun violence or things like that. I always like to hear about people's origin stories. So I, yes, you, have been involved in the community and in theater productions for youth. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came specifically to say, like, I'm going to make a movie now, like it's my time to be a director? Yes. Well, I'm a professional actor and my husband is as well. And we came to this community because he had performed here on tour. And it's a really special place. I I, I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's for Florida. It's it's totally different than most places. And we came here and I started doing this program called The Source. 
where I would lead theater workshops with young people and started touring in the schools. And I brought professional actor sensibility to an educational theater model. And so I started writing the plays. Like I, we deal with issues, but they're about, you know, they have the hero's journey. They're about real characters. They're about, they're dramatic. They're, and so a lot of times people who do educational theater, they're more skit level or they're like, this is how you do that. And, and we were bringing these compelling dramas. And so we would go into the schools and 700 kids would be like riveted to their seats. And, you know, this is when usually the schools would try to teach something like about AIDS, for example, or about teen pregnancy or bullying or drugs. And normally the kids would kind of roll their eyes and, you know, say, oh, here we go. But we would come in and they'd be like, oh, my God. And they would just be so they'd want to change their lives. And they would write us hundreds of letters like you changed my life. I'm changing the way I think about things. And so out of that, hundreds and hundreds of kids became trusted me and wanted to be a part of this. And so I started, you know, it just became bigger and bigger. We were touring around the country. We went to Congress. We but then one day, about 10 years ago, I was in a rehearsal with young people and they were kind of scattered, you know, losing their focus. And it was happening more and more where I felt their focus was lapsing. And so I thought, I'll take some publicity photos, you know. And the minute I lifted up my camera, <laughs> all the kids were like hyper focused and really into it. And their acting improved. And I just looked at the camera in my hand and I went, Oh, I and that was the moment I realized that the whole culture had shifted to and I started noticing everywhere I went, kids doing selfies, kids at Best Buy, you know, you know, posing in front of <laughs> the computer and making faces. And I just hadn't been aware of it. I was so involved with the theater. And so I was in L.A. for the summer and went to somebody's premiere of their web series. And I was like, oh, cool. I'll go back and do a web series. You know, so I'll, I'll, it'll take me a month. And I ended up working on it for three years and it became my film school. And I did this web series and I just got so enamored with the medium. And we were just using a DSLR, you know, which can create beautiful video. And then I just, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we made a short film and then we made another short film and then we made a small feature and then we made another. And so it all kind of grew out of that first day where I was taking a photograph mm. and uh, also doing lots of PSAs and short videos and documentaries and things like that. So we were all kind of learning as we, as we did it. So I never went to film school. And that is frustrating because the medium itself, as you know, is always changing. And so there's always so much to learn. And each time you master it, then, you know, everything changes, you know, but it's maybe also what fascinates me. So uh, I get this question a lot and I'm, I'm sure Liz does too, where they're like, how do I get started? How do I make a short film? You know, and it's like, I, I kind of have the same answer I always have, but I've, you know, came from a background of, you know, learning about it in school, like making movies in high school and class and then doing it in college. But for you, for someone who's just literally teaching themselves how to make a movie, like just, you know, starting with a DSLR, can you just talk about like what is the very first thing you did that like yeah. got you going in your filmmaking experience, I guess? Yes. And also, I think within that, I had a lot, I was always very, you know, imposter syndrome because 
I had a theater background. I was a professional actor. I wasn't a filmmaker. I wasn't technical at all. And so for many, for a lot of years, I would have a lot of male filmmakers around that were helping me. And I was always like, I don't know. I don't know. And but gradually over time, you realize I had a lot of skills that they didn't have. You know, like I was a professional actor. I knew how to, I was a director. I knew how to tell a story. I was a writer. And I, so I brought a lot of those skills. So everybody has what they bring to the table. Someone else might be so great at lighting and someone else with sound. And, and so I would say, first of all, don't be ashamed that you don't have necessarily the traditional path to becoming a filmmaker, that there's lots of ways to get there. And I found with, as a female filmmaker, for a long time, I felt that the men knew more than I did. And again, there was a moment where we were downloading some new software. And I was like, I don't know how to do it. I'm so stupid. I don't, I'm not technical. And then I noticed the two men I was with were leaning in and reading the instructions. And I went, oh, they don't know either. But they're not saying how stupid they are and that they don't know what they're doing. You know, and so I changed from that day forward where I'm like, just lean in, read the instructions and figure it out, you know, toughen up. So I had to do, maybe it's my generation too, I, but I had to do a lot of toughening up that I belonged as a director, that I had the right to be there and to tell this story and to direct all these people as with a lot of technical equipment, you know. So, and I think the society itself has changed, particularly in the last five years, where there's a lot more support for female filmmakers and, you know, a lot more acceptance as you see those role models. You know, it's hard to go into a profession where you don't have the role models because you, you're kind of an outlier. But now there's a lot more women in these roles. So I forget what the question was. <laughs> that was pretty much answered it. Yeah. Okay. I remembered my other question from earlier. I wanted to hear about your process as a filmmaker and really like, cause you know, you own your own company, you're raising your own budget, you're finding your own, you're doing it all yourself really. Yeah. So like when you make a movie, like, like, do you have a producer that's working with you the, the whole time or yeah. are you that producer? Like, how does it work? Oh, and also I remember your other question about somebody starting a film. Right. I think they're the iPhones today are and the Androids, if you have an Android, but the cameras are phenomenal. You know, you can make a movie with your iPhone. You know, you don't even have to get the extra little lenses. I mean, you know, there are movies being shot with iPhones and all you basically need is good audio, you know, and you can go out there and you can tell stories and you can make a mark and you can put it on YouTube and you know, there's nothing stopping people today from being filmmakers. And the, as you do that, you learn, you learn about, you know, for me, every aspect is, okay, I have to learn this now. Okay, I have to learn this kind of editing now, or now I'm ready for this. And there's so much information out there, you know, so I think, you know, in a way, it's also a curse because there's so many people doing it. But I think there's nothing, if you want to make movies, there should be nothing stopping you. So yes, about my process, I do, I raised all this money. I know how to do it now, kind of. So I, I knew what it takes and I have a producer that I pay, but I am the executive producer. And I eventually I would like to hire someone to handle that part. But right now I do the fundraising and the executive producing as far as budgeting and, and all that. But I have a producer, Jerry Chambliss who really helps with all the contracting and logistics and, 
you know, helping find a lot of the crews. And, you know, he's basically a, you know, a person right beside me helping quite a bit with, you know, the logistics. And then we hire, we have about a crew of about 30 people and we hire them by project. I have more questions unless Liz, I don't want to bogart the conversation. I don't, I, I only have like comments. It's really weird. Usually I like have 30,000 questions and right now I'm like, all right, the lean in thing was interesting. And then I started thinking about Sheryl Sandberg <laughs> and then I just started like, yeah. my mind just, and I was like, right, we should just right. talk about feminism and film for 20 minutes. Anyway. I know, right? <laughs> I know when I heard you on your podcast, I thought they sound so cool. I'd like to just hang out and talk to you. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I, I guess just because I want to go back to Oryx questions, but I wanted to weigh in with the comment about technical knowledge. And it's that I think the presumption is that a director needs to know everything. But right. I, always, I always express that fear, right? Like, I have to know everything. But then Auric or my husband or my best friend will always be like, but that's the cinematographer's job to do that thing that you're afraid you don't know about. Or that's what? the script coordinator, you know, that's right. the scripties job. So it's like you, you take on the burden without having to. Yes, but you at least want to know enough to be able to have an, you know, a conversation and to know what you want, mm -hmm. you know. And I feel like for me, like I also edit my films and that's another thing I want to outsource. And with this film, I have a lot more help. But I'm again, you know, as you know, editing so much, the film is made in the edit room. And I, I feel like that's a hard part for me to let go of. You know, I would want to find that editor who I, you know, 100% in a mind meld with, you know. But the fact that I know how to edit makes me a better writer and it makes me a better director. I pay attention to my ins and my outs and how I, you know, you know what you need if you understand editing. Mm -hmm. And before I started editing, I didn't, I didn't realize that somehow, you know. Well, that's part one last question for me, Alric, and then I'll turn it over to you. And it's, you know, you, you come from the educational world and the theater world. Have you or do you have aims to get into, you know, commercial representation, sales agents? Like, what is your relationship to distributors or have you been self-distributing? Like, because because you're so mission motivated, I'm curious if that goes hand in hand with a level of creative control and a level of control over the release of the film mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, I I definitely would like to get into more distribution. And we were going in that direction with Surviving Launch and then the pandemic. We had a year of film festivals and it was very successful. And then like, someone, uh, I, I guess she would be like a distributor type person or some, I forget what her, uh, some kind of person that was going to sell the movie for us. It's like a sales and, rep. Yeah. And she was in LA and I went out and did a little re-editing with an editor out in Santa Monica. This was like in December. And then she was just starting to pitch it to Hulu and various people. And then the pandemic hit and everybody freaked out and it just sort of sat frozen for months. And I was just like, I made this movie for kids to see it were nonprofit, you know, so we, I self-distributed it on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. And it's making a little bit of money through that, you know, about maybe, you know, thousands of dollars, certainly not making back what we put into it, but it's definitely making a lot of money. And so I, it was a viable thing. More and more people are putting their content on Amazon Prime so that it's getting more difficult to get up there. And and they, some people I understand, they're even kicking off. Yeah. And so I don't know where that, <laughs> maybe, do you know how that, where that stands? Because I haven't looked at it since. 
Yeah. I mean, like, I can't tell you why they do it, but they are still definitely rejecting films. It's certainly much harder to get up on Amazon Prime. And they are still taking titles down. So and they haven't ever exclaimed why, as far as I know, why the policies, what the policies were that led them to this behavior. And you have to know there's it can be a frustrating experience to just get everything exactly right, you know, for to get it up there. But, you know, it's been great. Both our movies are on Amazon Prime and that's been it's been great, you know, because it's given us some revenue and. You know, I think it's a it's a good option for filmmakers, but they keep whittling away at what you get from what percentage you get. And I think it's based on how many views like your percentage goes up, the more it's seen. And I don't understand And whoever that. uploaded. If you worked with a distributor who has a certain relationship with Amazon, they have a preferred rates. And yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's all bullshit. Yeah. But <laughs> anyway, all right, take it away. Right. <laughs> Oh, with that. So <laughs> I, I wanted to hear yeah, more about your process again, just specifically with casting. Mm-hmm. Like what, what is your approach? Like, do you go after name talent for your films and try to, you know, book somebody who is going to bring a little cachet to the project? Or are you just casting completely locally out of your area? Well, that's a good question. I, I've done a lot of movies about young people. And so a lot of it was cast either from kids I had personally trained and I knew them, you know, their abilities or people who I had trained who moved to L.A. or New York and I would fly them in for the movie. I really love that family feel of people you totally trust and you can sort of think of them as you write. And, you know, that was a beautiful process for me. But we then we would supplement with people like we did for Surviving Lunch. We brought a few people in. We did a we cast through, I think, backstage and through a few agents and things like that through the Florida area primarily. But we got people coming in from, you know, Orlando or Tampa or various places. And then with this film, I have a lot of adults in the film. So we have actors coming from all over the place through L.A. and Atlanta and Texas. And it, which is its own odd thing, because. They're all going to arrive. You don't have as much rehearsal time. You just hope and with, you know, you're not checking chemistry or comparing their videotapes, you know, so it's going to be an interesting process. I would love to cast. It is non-union, my new movie. All my movies have been. And I, I see the difference in the type of movies that are chosen for festivals, for the big festivals. It's almost always you need kind of a name not exclusively, but it helps so much with getting buzz around your movie and festival distribution and all that kind of thing. And so I've certainly looked into it. I feel like we're not quite there yet for to be able to deal with all the budget constrictions of the union of SAG. But we certainly looked into it for this one. But luckily, we have a lot of SAG eligible actors who are phenomenal and exactly what I was looking for. So it worked out, but we didn't go union. But we have backstage, actors access, a lot of that. And everybody's doing self-tapes now. We did a lot of looking at their profiles and then sending them size and then they would record. And, you know, it, it works pretty well, actually, because you see what they look like on camera. And so. <laughs> so I want to double down on Liz's last question. And, and you sort of answered it, but I want to specifically ask about like, like your ideals for your career as a director, like, is it to have 
like a manager and an agent and to be like getting booked to, you know, direct this movie or that movie or write a movie here or sell a movie there? Like, or is it really like the thing that you're doing, which it seems to me is like a really special thing is that you're writing movies specifically around things that you care about and you're making them just however you want to, no matter what, basically. So I'm just curious, like, is there a desire to go in the other direction or do you just want to, you know, keep pushing forward with the direction you're in? Wow. I think I like kind of like both, like Wingspan now, my new company. I love it. (laughs) I really do love it. I love having my own company, but I certainly, I love the professional wide world as well. I don't, you know, and so I would never say no to doing a project for somebody else. Like say if I were going to go work on a series, a really good series somewhere or something like that, or you know, I spend a lot of time in Los Angeles. I love it out there. You know, Wingspan was kind of created to be able to work globally or nationally, wherever it is. It's not just geared to be here forever. But that said, it's a beautiful place to make movies. You know, you have access, you have kindness. People aren't sick of movie making yet. You know, you know, I guess I would say it sounds, you know, that's not a real answer, but I, I kind of like both. Like I would I would like Wingspan to continue to live, but I would also certainly be open to doing other projects as well. But it is very intoxicating to make your own projects and be your own boss. And, you know, it's gotten harder for me to be told what to do. I really don't like it. I'm Irish. I'm stubborn. You know, (laughs) I really think the thing that you're doing is the thing that everybody wants to do, you know, just to have this well where you can just make your films you have a process it's repeatable it's sustainable seemingly and it's like that like what else could you ask for in the world really and like now you don't have to chase the other bullshit that everyone else is chasing right yeah it's true and then you what i i guess what i i love working with the most talented people and i would like to continue to have the funds to be able to continue to attract the best crew the best actors you know, it's exciting for me, our, our, our film coming up. You know, I'm excited about the actors that are coming in. I'm excited about our camera team and, you know, it's, and what we're going to do. And to see that passion out of, we have a, new, a cinematographer and he's so excited. He's so, you know, his eye, he's just what, what we can achieve, you know, and, and even things like what lenses we choose and, you know, getting on that same meld with other actors where you're making the same movie that's in your head and you see that they see it. And I mean, there's, it's as good as it gets, really. But well, with that, I think we have to move to the final five questions. And these are, Ulrich mentioned the kind of more longitudinal ones. What's the first film you made? How do you feel about it now? The first film I made, I guess, would have been that web series. Hmm. which was called free, but would that count as a film? I mean, it was on the first project, whatever you want to do. And I'm so proud of it because it was our first. And I loved the cast were these five actors that were like my family and the, the crew, Alex Stafford was my cinematographer and we were all learning together. And I had, we were everywhere. I had him on rooftops. I had him up trees. I had him in cemeteries in the middle of the night. We, I mean, we we did everything together. So I'll always be proud of Freefall and treasure those moments. And in fact, I miss those days when we were just like running about and grabbing stuff. And like, I, I keep thinking I wanted my next film to be like that, where I'm just shooting it with my iPhone and I'm free to... I remember, did you see the Florida Project? Mm-hmm. I heard that that filmmaker, he, 
he wanted to say, oh, look at the light over there. Let's grab it, you know, and yet he had this huge crew and budget now. And so they couldn't all run across the street because he now had money and he had people and he had, I saw it somewhere. He, I may be like paraphrasing whatever he said, but he missed that freedom of movement and creativity. Mm. I'd like to find a way to somehow still be a child, that sense of discovery of being able to move freely and grab stuff, you know? So I guess, yeah, my answer to your question is I'm still proud of it. I don't show it or send it out to people. I kind of cringe, you know, because we didn't know what we were doing, but the actors were gorgeous and brilliant and talented and and the camera work was lovely. So we just didn't quite know what we were doing yet. <laughs> and what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Hmm. I think someone t recently, I just did a project, I'm making a film about Gloria Steinem, a short film. And I was in her apartment in New York about three weeks ago. But the person who hired me for this film told me, I said, I'm raising all this money and I'm doing all this stuff for my new feature. And she said, Katie, they are lucky. The world is lucky that you are making this movie. Don't go in like everyone's doing you a favor. They are lucky to have you doing this. It's important and the story needs to be told. And I went, they're lucky, <laughs> you know. And it's just something to remember because you have, you do so much pitching and so much asking that you can, if you're not careful, you can begin to feel a sense of lack instead of a feeling of abundance. And that I think somehow her attitude made me feel, I guess it was good advice. It stuck with me. It helped me as I went into all these pitch sessions. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Well, my goal right now is to finish this movie that I'm about to make, you know, to, we have so many pieces and we finished shooting on January the 8th. And so my goal is to get to January the 8th in one piece to get all the footage that we have planned and to try to stay in balance. That's another thing as a, a person who tries to do a lot is I can wear down as the project goes along. Have you found that? Like you're, you know, as the movie's going on, you're up till two or three doing the next day's prep and then you're on set at five or six a.m. and you're just, that can only sustain for so long. And so how do you have that level of self-care to just not get so tunnel vision that you don't stop to rest once in a while? And if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? I think it would be somewhere along the line of what I was talking to about. You have a right to be there. You're not an imposter. You've paid your dues. And you have a right to tell this story. And if I'd known that at the beginning, I, I think I, I think I would be more where I am. Like I'm there now. And maybe it's because now I have really walked the walk. It's kind of hard if you haven't walked the walk, but I guess I would say it's all going to be okay. You have a right to be here. You know, something brought you into filmmaking and own it, you know, own your right to tell this story. Is making movies hard? <laughs> making movies. I was thinking about that because of the making movies is hard. I would laugh every time I saw the title of your podcast because I was like, it's so hard. But then I thought, what is it that is so hard? And I think it's just that it, it's not that it's so hard, but it's so much. You know, every aspect of it is so much. And I remember with Surviving Lunch, I thought, okay, I'll get through this and then it'll be easy. But then you get to the next part, which is really hard, like getting the 5.1 sound mix, 
was so hard. You know, I had to get so many, <laughs> you know, all the software and the editing is hard and the marketing is hard and traveling around the country at film festivals is Wait, it's so not did you mix the hard. film yourself too? No, I had I had a mixer in a mixer in Delaware mixed it and they did a beautiful job. Oh. But in order to prepare all the files for what to do a professional mix, that was hard. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work. I just did it. So yeah, I it's a lot of pain. work. It's like 40 lines on the timeline. You know, it's just it's a lot. Well, thank, thank you. you so much for being <laughs> well, on the show, KT. This is so been great. great to meet you both. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for your podcast. May it become easier somehow with each new one we make. <laughs> How can people best support you? Well, they could see Surviving Lunch on Amazon Prime. Or if they want to send me money, <laughs> that would be great. I'm making a movie about mental health and first responders coming out of the pandemic. And so if they would like to be a part of that, they could send it to kt at wingspanproductions.org. And I'll tell them how they can be a part of what we're doing. Thank you. <laughs> Alric, what do you remember about the chat with KT? This was really interesting. She's a lot different than a lot of our guests because she had a full career as an actor. And was she also an educator as well? Am I getting that right? Yeah, she did those like educational theatrical shows at, yeah. at schools. Yeah. So, you know, she came to filmmaking much later in life than most of our guests. And her story of how she fell into filmmaking and how she became a filmmaker is really, really interesting and very inspiring. And I feel like for people who are like looking to jump into filmmaking, you know, as a second career or something that they're doing, not like right out of film school or maybe not even going to film school altogether, which is what KT did. I think this is a really, really great episode for that. And then her energy, man, it's really interesting. She's like so positive and so like she's very inspiring the way that she talks about her filmmaking because she was like, oh, man, my first feature, it was so big. It was so big. I couldn't even get my head around it. And then it's like, she talks like my second feature it was so big. I couldn't even. And then she's talking about her third one she's making now. She's like, it's even bigger. It's crazy. But, but she, she manages to do it every time and, you know, pull together an, a movie out of it, which is like, I don't know. It's pretty impressive. So I just thought it was like her whole model of like how she raised her funds and how she gets her projects going. It's like, we like talked about on the show. It's like, you don't even getting a manager, getting an agent, like booking a paid for a directing job. It's like that kind of stuff is cool to her, but like that's not a necessity in order for her to be successful because she's already got a model that is working, which is pretty cool. I, I really, I remember the interview really took off when you acknowledged that. I remember there was like this momentum in the, the Zoom room when you were like, you're doing what every filmmaker wants. And <laughs> it was a really nice recognition of her situation. I also think she's in a very particularly unique sweet spot. She's outside of LA, New York. She's working on impact-driven films. She has an entire, she's like her, her entire reputation has proven that she has dedicated herself to that field. And she seems to be a well-networked individual as well. It's like a great culmination of someone who has goals, goes out to achieve those goals and succeeds. And I think that's a great story to impart to other filmmakers. Yeah. And it just shows that like you don't need to ride this elevator that we keep on talking about in order to have success. You can do it without the elevator in KT's proof. Yeah. Well, at least for the next three years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll check in with her after three years. Did it all work out? <laughs> I, I'm betting it will. <laughs> 
So this week we have an article from Business Insider about the low domestic box office for the Thanksgiving weekend and how adult dramas are underperforming at the box office. Surprise, surprise. No, it's not a surprise. Of course they aren't. You know, I mean, I, I kind of feel like this has been something that's been going on for a long time where like movie, th- like even before the pandemic, where like people are going to the theater for the big, like eyeball catching, amazing blockbuster movies. And like they're watching like the indie dramas and like the more like even the award winning like Oscar films are being stru- streamed. Like people aren't going to the theater to watch like, I don't know, I can't think of a, a more modern version. So I'm just going to say The King's Speech, right? Like those types of movies, like they're being watched on, on streamers. They're being watched on Hulu. They're being watched on, you know, Amazon. They're being rented through VOD. Like people aren't running out to watch those movies in the theater. They are running out to watch like, yeah, any Avengers movie, apparently not the James Bond movie, which is kind of surprising because that was like what I would think people would be running to the theater to see. But like, you know, it's not surprising to me that horror movies and blockbusters are doing well while dramas aren't. But yeah, I don't know. What do you, I, I, I just kind of feel like, yeah, like the box office is bad. It, it's been going down for years besides the pandemic. So it's, I don't even know how it's like, I feel like it's the same thing that we've always said. It's like an acceleration of the few of what's going to happen. And that like people are still going to go to the theater, but they're not going to go to the theater for the same kinds of movies they used to go to. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I also just speaking from my indie film sales perspective, because I do pitch films to distributors. I'm going to eventually pitch them to platforms. But right now, I'm more like a matchmaker with distributors. And, you know, I will have a film that I think is a tremendous film, one that I really believe in. I think it is great performances, great writing, great directing, like genuinely across the board quality film. And I will get responses back from distributors that will be like, oh, it's a drama. Oh, no, 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 thank you. Like, oh, no, we this the marketplace is not strong enough for something like that. Or I mean, like, I wish I could quote them. Or there'll be a distributor who'll just outright say, here are the things I'm looking for. And they'll be like, Western, dark comedy, horror, sci-fi, need to have some kind of cast in place, even if it's not the lead. Like, it's these specific stipulations that are being put forth. And these are mainly digital distributors. So of course, when it comes to like lower level digital distribution, Dramas are being shut out. I would assume the same would happen for theatrical. It's, dramas are not being sought after, even though they're substantial and beautiful and great, wonderful storytelling. For, you know, if you hit it out of the park, you hit it out of the park. But, and they're what I think a lot of indie filmmakers want to make, are character dramas. But yes, we're not being yeah. compensated properly. And theatrically, we're not being supported in that way either. So I watched Zola recently. I haven't seen it. Oh, really? I oh, that's surprising. Yeah. I thought that you would have seen it. I know. I would have thought I had <laughs> too, but I haven't seen it. But th- this movie, so this, oh, this probably qualifies, right? Like, it, it doesn't have any major talent in it. Like, nobody named. Like, there's, you know, Greg from, you know, Successions in it. Cousin Greg or whatever. I don't know if you watch that show. But, I like, he's probably the, the, the biggest face, right? Because, like, you know, he's recognizable. But everybody else is, like, unknowns. And that's a good movie. You know, I enjoyed it and I watched it, you know? But, like... Like how many like dramas without like a major star in the in in the movie could you say that you've seen in the last like two years? That's the one I can think of besides movies I watch for the podcast. (laughs) I saw Cold War, which was amazing, and that's a foreign film. That's a foreign foreign. Yeah. Okay. And then Beast of the Southern Wilds, fifteen years ago. 
That's my point. Yeah. And, and even the dramas with the major stars, like you see so many of these with like named actors like on streamers that like you never heard of before and didn't make it into theaters. And it's like, I don't know, like I can't count that many, but there's definitely somewhere I'm like, oh, why is Adam Driver in this movie that I've never heard of? Like, this doesn't make any sense. You know, like yeah. he should like I should have heard of the movie if he's in it. Right. Like it should have been like, you know, like, I don't know, whatever. One of these big movies that. You can't even think of one like Last Duel or something. I don't know. Well, yeah. And like Ridley Scott's so cranky about how Last Duel was being received. Like he just blames society. I mean, it's just like a curmudgeon. -y. I mean, whatever. He's he's earned it. <laughs> he's earned, he's earned the right to be a complete curmudgeon. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I feel like he should stop making movies because he just <laughs> keeps on making these movies. And it's like everyone loved The Martian, but uh, I could not stand it. And I'm just you like, didn't like The Martian? No. Oh, I'm cheesy. <laughs> Man, I feel like we're so different in our, uh, per, like, you like, you know, that stupid Zack Schneider movie that I hate. Yeah, Army of the Dead. I thought it was really fun. That's so funny. Wait, I know this is completely off topic, but I watched the pilot for Yellow Jackets today. Oh, cool. It's research for my, my script. And it's so fucking great. Like, oh, really? maybe we could come together on that. It is so good. And it's yeah. high concept, right? So it's like, yes, the, it's, this is the time of the high concept, but it never was not the time of the high concept project. I think that's, that's definitely true, too. Anyways, I think we're done with this article. <laughs> Whatever. Who cares? People aren't going to the movies. Hopefully, they'll be going to the movies more in the, in the future. But like, I don't think the box office numbers, unless it's going to be like a humongous tentpole, like Avengers movie or something huge. Like, they're not going to be back to the way they were in, in the old days. It's just not going to happen anymore. I just don't think so. Hmm. You know, what do you think? You think they will? Well, I can, I can just say that I went to Alamo Drafthouse recently to go see No Time to Die, which I talked about on the show. And it was such a wonderful experience that it's like, it, I don't think, whatever. I think it's about marketing the projects, marketing the films in the right way, and then making it convenient, combining multiple things at the same time. We talked about this in the incubator where we're like, is there a world where we could go see a movie and get dental work at the same time? Like, can we just like <laughs> consolidate errands with going to see movies so that we could see more than the things that everyone talks about at the water cooler? Huh. So anyway, it's depressing. I, I have hope for the future, though. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I don't really want to get into it. My hope for the future is too, too much. But what I do want to get into is the alternate has officially secured distribution with Uncorked Entertainment, which I'm very excited about. They're a really cool company. They've uh, released some really awesome movies. I have high hopes for what they're going to do for the film, but I'll report back in eight months to a year about yes. what's going to happen. But basically, now that I've like, I'm signing the contracts, the deals are done, you know, what should I be doing now? Besides like obviously getting all my assets to them and recording my you know, commentary track that I want to have for my DVD and all these things. What should I do, Liz? What's the next steps for me? It's funny. I talked to, I won't give the name of this person, but it's someone who listens to every show we do. <laughs> and <laughs> you'll, you'll, it's not, it's not Gary Kennedy. <laughs> okay. And he, we were thinking of working together and me doing sales for his film. And, you know, I talked to him and I was like, look, if money is an issue for you, like, you shouldn't hire me. And let me tell you why, because this is the amount of money you're going to make. And this is how much money I cost. And while it's an educational experience and I could take you through what it's like pitching a film, ultimately, you would do better if you absorbed that fee you'd give me and use it for digital marketing or something. Like I was imparting this advice because his film didn't have any name stars. And it was one of those genres that is not trafficking very well right now. 
And then I thought I slept on it. And I was like, wow, that was really cynical advice to give this guy. And I thought about how I paid $5,000 for my publicist for Speed of Life. And I could probably say that we got no rentals because of that direct spend. But we got a trailer release on Entertainment Weekly. And I share that link with everyone. Like that, it basically helps brand me as a filmmaker that we reached that pinnacle, that we got that level of press to pay attention to us. And so this is, I know this is not exactly the question you're asking, but what I'm trying to say is like, what you have to think about is what are your goals for the release? Because revenue, you may not have a lot of control over, but what can you do to amplify your profile as a filmmaker so that you create a moment now that you can use later? Like that Entertainment Mm. Weekly link that I am obsessed with, I will forever use that, right? Like it will go in Mm. the bio. So what I'm saying is, while I think the traditional advice would be to say to you, like, build up your Facebook audience and do your newsletter and communicate with people and do a digital get, you know, prepare some 30 second spots to help supplement any marketing from your distributor. I think the important thing to do is figure out what what do you want to leave this release with? Is it 20 Rotten Tomatoes reviews? Is it getting meetings with X, Y, and Z? X, Y, and Z. I was going to say just like as a euphemism, but I really do yeah. mean X, Y, Z. You know, mm-hmm. and then That'd I would, great. <laughs> yeah, I would build up whatever you need to go towards that goal rather than just think of this as putting all your weight behind the moment of the release. Right. So it sounds like you, it says do all the things, right? Like, you know, promote yes. the movie. Do it, but recognize that you may be spending money that you're not going to get back. And so right. if you do, figure out what you want to keep out of that experience. Well, we already have a PR firm that's tied to my distrib- distributor. So they're going to like do a, a, like a whole press release mm-hmm. thing with it and like drum up interviews and reviews and all that stuff. And so I was asking like, oh, should I be drumming up reviews now? And he's like, no, no, wait until you could partner with the, the, with the PR people and then they'll, you know, do it with you, you know? So I'm basically going to like throw myself at the mercy of these guys and be like, hey, I use me. Like, I want to do everything. Like, I like, tell me what I should be doing. What can I do to help? I edit, I shoot, I do whatever. I can like do bonus interviews with the cast and crew. I can put all these other assets together. Like I should come up with some like sort of cool like campaign that's tied to the movie that I can do where it's like something to do with like alternate selves. Like we talked about this. I think maybe you gave me this idea. Somebody did where it's like we could interview the cast and the crew and be like, what is your alternate self? Yeah. You know, like what is the alternate you like? And like what would alternate, you know, Ed Gonzalez Moreno be? You yeah. know, and like have that for the leads, have that for some of the, the crew and just like create these little fun little like a minute long little pieces that are branded with the alternate and then just like shoot those out, you know, through social media, through YouTube, through Vimeo, through, you know, IG, everything. I think that would be a cool thing to do to like help promote the movie. Just to like blast little p- content bits, you know, little nuggets out, you know, before the release and then after the release to kind of like get people excited about it. And then also get like really great reviews, hopefully. <laughs> of course. But I think it's, I think so like when I, my, when I talked to my publicist, she was like, well, what are your goals? You know, and I think originally I was like, well, I just want to be reviewed, you know? And then I said to her, actually, I don't care about reviews. I want you to, to book as many things that focus on me as a director as possible rather mm. than reviews. Like I don't care about how many bloggers see the film and review it. Like, can you get me interviews? Can you get me pieces where I write essays and submit them to Talk House or Filmmaker Magazine or movie, you know, things like that. 
So that's also the question for yourself, too, is like, what is the value of a review versus what is the value of a feature piece on some sort of sub theme of the film that you can get in a Mm -hmm. sci-fi specific periodical or website? Right. Because I think publicists and PR teams are just going to go to the usual suspects for every single film. So if you come in with a specific request, you're going to push them more and you're going to get more out of that relationship. Mm -hmm. So I think like, where do you want to be covered? Like what would be the like slash film? Would slash film be like the ultimate or would there be something cooler than slash film? Slash film would be great, obviously. But yeah, I mean, I'd love to be an IndieWire just because IndieWire would be amazing. That would be like checking a box for me, right? Right. Yeah, but there's there's probably a long list of places that I would want to show up in. IO9 would be great too, like because they're very like tech sci-fi focused, you know, and they do film review stuff. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of places that would be really awesome to be on. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like it, it's interesting because all the things you're saying they all sound good to me, right? It's like yeah, I want interviews. Yeah, I want reviews. Yeah, I want like you know to write essays and be featured on Movie Maker magazine and all these other places. Like I want all the things, you yeah. know. But I guess you, your point is that you don't have all the time, right, and all the right. the energy necessarily. So you have to be selective on like what you focus well, on like, to do. Where are you going to be the squeaky wheel for your teammates, right? Because right. if you if you just keep on saying vaguely, I want to do it, all the things then they're going to be like, okay, cool. We'll do all the things, right? But if you're like, hey, how's that IndieWire pitch going? Did you get, did, right. did, am I on IndieWire yet? You know, like, or whatever it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Then you get more out of, you get more traction. So I'm just saying like, right. don't, don't worry about being specific because they are going to make money off of you. So like their business right. is making money off of you. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm also curious, like, what do you think? Like, like when your movie's released, like, what could you do to, like, get in front of a company like XYZ? Like, does it have to be, like, a manager agent sort of situation where you get pitched to those kinds of people? Or is there something that you could do to, like, position yourself where, oh, this movie's coming out, like, production companies will be, will have eyeballs on it. And then, like, Ulrich could be there to, like, you know, raise his hand and say, talk to me. Like, how does it, how does that work to you? I mean, my play, because I'm going to go to XYZ for one or two projects soon, but I don't have any context there. And like a friend is going to intro me who has worked with them before. So it's like, uh, I think it's the same thing for festivals, for distributors, for production companies. Find a common bond who is pre-vetting you for them. And like, I would come with something, just one thing to brag about, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I know I keep on talking about the Entertainment Weekly thing, but it's like, if you have a link that shows you are on some, someone's radar, you know, right. if you're new and notable on iTunes or sorry, Apple TV or just something mm. you could say, hey, but this week we're trending in the top 20, by the way, you know, so go. Yeah. I say this. I feel like I just repeat the same advice all the time. So I'm sorry for being boring, but like go when you have momentum or else you can easily be discarded. Right. Right. Exactly. So when, when your moment's happening, yeah. that's the time to call on the favors to like see what you can secure like whether yeah. it's a meeting or an introduction or whatever I think so good advice Yay. well liz thank you so much for answering my questions about that i think this is very like it's very like eye-opening and kind of like reassuring of like kind of what my plan was is to like kind of come to them with lots of ideas and and not just say like hey what, what can i do but like be like oh these are places that i would love to be you know featured in you know places i've been emailing <laughs> directly 
my work for years and maybe not even getting any kind of response. And so like, oh, now I can go to my PR people and be like, hey, these are the lists of all the places, like put the top one first. Can you get me, you know, featured in any of these places like review or interview or whatever? It doesn't matter. You know, I'm open. Yeah. So. Come with ideas. And also just for what it's worth for someone who does sales, like I had a client to me, you know, she's a very niche film and she's like, what about this? distributor that does niche films just like mine. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. I completely forgot about that company. So it's like, they're not really thinking about you all the time, your distributor and your PR mm-hmm. team and your public, like they're doing a job and that it's a nine to five for them. So like, don't forget to like, make sure that the PR team is working with the merchandising side of your distributor is working with the sales team, you know, just like make sure that they're talking to each other. Or else mm-hmm. everything is going to happen in a, in a vacuum each time. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, I think with that, you know, if you want to ask us a question or, you know, give us a comment or maybe even a suggestion, you can email us at podcast at makeymoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which would be amazing. Or it's Apple Podcasts now, I guess is what it's called. And finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. And a big thanks to KT Coran for coming on the show and to our producer, Eric, for being awesome and setting this up. And then a big thanks to our editor, Jeff Vrymoot, for doing the editing. And we'll talk to you guys next week. You said that you were going to, um, you have 126 drafts. And oh, the emails. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Fuck that. <laughs> That's like my holiday break. I'll do that. Okay. Um, okay. Let's get started, huh? Ready.